Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Life of Elijah, which is a study on Elijah's life found in 1 Kings. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. I want to pray over the word just for a moment. Lord, we ask for your spirit to be in the middle of this time. Lord, we want your presence in our worship, your presence in our prayer lives. We also want your presence in our study and as we examine your scripture, Lord. So, Holy Spirit, I just declare, we declare this is your time. You speak. If there's anything that comes out of my mouth that's not from your heart, let it be dismissed. But every word that is from your heart, Lord, let it be established. Lord, you said that your word does not come back void. We ask for a harvest to come forth as your word goes out. And God, use us, we pray, for your glory. Lord, it was the Westminster Catechism that said the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Help us, Lord, to glorify you and enjoy you. That's our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. First Kings 19. Charles Spurgeon wrote that A man named Andrew Fuller was the greatest theologian of Spurgeon's day. And Andrew Fuller hasn't talked about much today. But he grew up in what's called high Calvinism. We call high Calvinism today, hyper Calvinism, Um, hyper Calvinists, which are not that common, by the way. Most Calvinists that we know are not like the Calvinists in our community are not hyper Calvinists. Hyper Calvinists teach that. Um, it's unjust to ask unregenerate people to repent and trust Jesus because they don't have the ability to do so. Meaning essentially that because from their view, God has predestined who will be saved and who will not be saved, and no person can come to God without God drawing that person unto him, it's wrong to preach the gospel to sinners. Do you guys understand that line of logic? Like if God's perfectly ordained everything that's going to come to pass, you're telling someone to repent, who doesn't have the ability to repent, and it's unjust and cruel is what hyper-Calvinism taught. Now, again, the Calvinists today don't hold this position. I don't, I don't know of any Reformed church in our community who would agree with that. Um, but in Fuller's day, they did, and he was ordained as a pastor in 1775, and that was actually the only position that he was ever taught. He grew up in a um, camp of Baptist churches that, that taught that, that the, that the preacher wasn't to preach the gospel to the unsaved. He was only to preach um, to, the, to the church. The problem was that Fuller loved Jonathan Edwards, was a big fan of Jonathan Edwards. You remember Jonathan Edwards preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, and that's a gospel message to some unregenerate people there. Um, he loved David Brainard, Brainerd, um, the missionary to the American Indians. He was gripped by Brainerd's uh, biography that, that Jonathan Edwards wrote um, about how he laid his life down for the gospel. But again, he was taught that to call the unbeliever to repentance was inappropriate because, again, they couldn't respond. And so Andrew Fuller wrestled theologically. Remember, Spurgeon says he's the sharpest theological mind of his day. Um, and he labored through the scriptures and he recognized that Peter called large crowds to repentance and he recognized that Jesus called us to preach the gospel to the nations and he recognized um, 
that the New Testament is full of missionary activity, of Paul going to communities and proclaiming the gospel, and he determined that high Calvinism was totally unbiblical, and so like any highly intellectual man, he started to write, and he started to write books on it. He spent much time studying this issue, preaching that it was the saint's responsibility to preach the gospel. He wrote on the message, preached the message. He debated the message. He had many, again, in his own camp who wrote books, rebuking, what is that word? Rebuttal. How do you say rebuttal in that context, y'all? Rebutting? (laughs) Hallelujah. It's been a long weekend, (laughs) y'all. There were many rebutting his books, and so he's writing back, engaged in controversy. And after he had done it for a while, Andrew Fuller and his group of pastor friends decided that it was their responsibility to start a mission-sending organization, which is really common today, right? Like, we're very used to mission-sending organizations, but it had never been done before, at least not highly organized and uh, multiple churches beginning to recruit missionaries. And the first missionary that Andrew Fuller's organization sent was William Carey, who's known as the father of the modern mission movement. William William Carey went to India, brought the gospel to India. He inspired hundreds of missionaries to get on the field. But William Carey was sent by Andrew Fuller, who was the head of this mission-sending organization that that they brought together because Andrew Fuller had seen in the scriptures that it was their responsibility to bring the gospel to the nations. And so Andrew Fuller is now the head of this little organization, and they send William Carey, who goes down again as the founder of the modern missions movement. And Andrew Fuller's responsibility was to, he pastored a church in England, but his responsibility was to um, raise the funds. His responsibility was to go to churches and, and tell them about the work that they were doing. Andrew Fuller. Now, now think, um, our missionaries today, they send us email updates. There's no such thing as an email update, okay, in this day. And so they would, Andrew Fuller would spend hours writing the missionaries by hand, obviously, and he would send letters to the missionaries, and the missionaries would send letters back, and then he would spend hours um, trans, like, like sending out what the missionaries said to all the churches, So he's got to write to the missionaries, they write to him, and then he's got to write to all the churches, and then the churches want him to come and share, and they want, then then it's really Andrew Fuller's job to make sure the missionaries are supported financially, because the missionaries can't do their own support letters. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a big job all the while he's pastoring a church. And do you remember, William Carey has this famous, oh, I see it on videos all the time. William Carey has this famous saying, remember, he's the first modern missionary, I mean, he goes down in history. Um, and William Carey used this analogy. It was the analogy of a man descending in a mine to mine gold. And William Carey said, I will go down in the, in the hole if you will hold the rope. Was his, and his point was is that missionaries are to go overseas, but it's the church's responsibility to hold the rope and to support, to pray, to, to make sure their families are taken care of. And, and William Carey said, I'll go anywhere and preach anywhere, but you're going to have to hold the rope. He said that to Andrew Fuller. And, and a few friends, and, and it's often written that Andrew Fuller was single-handedly the, the, the strongest rope holder, that Andrew Fuller's entire life he spent making sure that these missionaries were taken care of, that they were supported. He was praying for them, sharing their prayer requests, preaching and inviting other new missionaries to come and join their work. Andrew Fuller was a busy man.
He did all of this while pastoring a church. The large majority of his ministry, he never had an associate pastor. It was, it was just him. He wrote to a friend this. He said, I sit down today almost in despair. My wife looks at me with a tear ready to drop and says, My dear, you hardly have time to speak to me. My friends at home are kind, but they also say, You have no time to see us or know us, and you'll soon be worn out. Amidst all of this, there is come again to Scotland, come to Portsmouth, come to Plymouth, come to Bristol. He wrote to another friend that he worried that his missions work was hindering his ability to pastor his congregation well. He wrote, I long to visit my congregation that it may know of their spiritual concerns and preach to their cases. His biographers write that his congregation never seemed to have an ill word to say about him. They were proud of the missions work that he had done and supported him well, even when they didn't see him so much. His first wife passed away just a few months before the missions organization um, was founded, the Mission Society. But his second wife um, told Andrew Ford, she said, you have no time for recreation. He responded, oh, no, all my recreation is just a change of work. His son wrote that he just months before he died, he was still sitting at his desk working for 12 hours a day, again, answering letters, sending letters. I was thinking on his life today, as I was thinking on, uh, not today, this week, as I was thinking on Elijah's life, and I thought, can you imagine this, this man who Charles Spurgeon said is the most brilliant theological mind of the day, this man who wrote books that dethroned false theology and spurred an entire missions movement, all the while he's pastoring a church and leading the missions movement, can you imagine him sitting down to write and saying, I'm almost in despair and hindsight is twenty twenty, you know, and you, in the moment, you don't realize the, the fruitfulness that the man's life was having and in, and in all honesty is still having today. We are still in the middle of what's, what's deemed the modern missions movement, and we still point to Andrew Fuller as the one who kind of sparked it. Yet he was exhausted, tired, despair, he writes, despair. One author, biographer, wrote, Fuller had remarkable reserves of physical and mental energy which allowed him to accomplish all that he did, but it was not without cost to his body. What he called a paralytic stroke in 1793 left him rarely free or uh, free of severe headaches for the rest of his life. And in his last 15 years, he was rarely well. And when you think... Andrew Fuller, when you kind of examine his life, you see a man with a profound calling, a profound gifting, a man who changes the face of the earth. And you also see a man who lives life within a temporal body that can only take so much. And as he pushes himself to the edge of his work, he writes, I struggle with despair. I don't think when he says despair, I don't think he means just exhaustion. I think he means depression. He struggles with um, feelings of wanting to quit. He struggles with, with what we would call burnout. And, and, and when we get to a place where we begin to wrestle with burnout, the, the enemy always heightens spiritual warfare. It's the, it's the prime moment for hell to begin to whisper in your ear.
Imagine if the enemy had gotten Andrew Ford to call quits. Our entire church culture would be different. And as we look at Elijah, just again want to remind you that James writes in James chapter 5 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Like Andrew Fuller, Elijah changes his society, but today we'll read he sits down under a broom tree, and our text will tell us he sat down in despair. The man who called fire down from heaven one moment has just prayed in rain, ends the three and a half year drought, now sits down to pray and prays, it's enough, and he'll pray, Lord, take my life. Let's read our text. First Kings 19. Verse 1 through 8, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, if you missed our last bit in our series, we talked some about Elijah on Friday night as well. Um, remember, Elijah prays, or Elijah tells Ahab um, that there will be no rain again in Israel until he prays, until he says so. And there was no rain for three and a half years. And so Elijah after three and a half years, goes to Ahab and asks that Ahab gather all of the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, and meet him at Mount Carmel. And they would test the gods. And whatever God responded with fire, they would know then that that was the true God. And so Elijah's proposition was this. He says to the prophets of Baal, you gather for yourself a sacrifice, cut it, prepare it, put it on the altar, only don't put fire to it. And you can pray um, that your God, Baal, will send fire upon that sacrifice. And the scripture says that they did so. They prayed for hours, but no fire came. Elijah prepares his sacrifice before the people of Israel. And the fire of God comes from heaven, consumes the, the bull, the altar, the stones around the altar, and licks up water that Elijah had had them pour on the sacrifice. And, and then from there... Elijah tells Ahab that there's now going to be rain. The drought's going to end. And so Elijah goes up onto Mount Carmel and he prays seven times. He prays until he sees a little cloud in the distance. And that seeing the cloud, he gets up and he tells Ahab, get your chariot going. Um, because if you stay for too long, you'll be stuck in the mud. Scripture, scripture gives this really um, interesting picture. It says that Elijah girded up his garments, meaning that, uh, how do you say, that he kind of picked up his robe in between his legs and tied it up so that he could run and that he ran over 20 miles. He outran the chariot and its horses um, all the way back to Jezreel. And so now it's at this moment when he's just run again for over 20 miles. He's just prayed for rain. He's just confronted the prophets of Baal um, that 
it's in this moment that, that Jezebel, on hearing what happens, says, um, essentially she says, I'll kill you within one day. You'll be dead in a day. Now put yourself in Elijah's shoes. Surely national revival is now here. The people of Israel have just fallen on the ground when they see the fire of God and they have declared the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Ahab saw it. The king saw it. The king seemed to be okay with the whole thing. He eats and drinks and gets ready to go. And Elijah, I think, is sure that the battle is over, that Israel is now going to be in revival. All the prophets of Baal are dead. Everyone saw the fire of God, the mighty hand of God. From Elijah's perspective, it's over, man. He's ready to rest. Runs for over 20 miles. But there's one person who wasn't there for the showdown. Jezebel wasn't there for the entire event. And after all, Ahab is a rather weak man. It's his wife Jezebel that's the real threat. And she's totally committed to Baal. She's not repentant at the story of the fire of God falling from heaven. She's not repentant in this moment when she recognizes that Baal has been defeated by Yahweh. And now there's rain. They're in the middle of a great downpouring of rain. The land that she's the queen of has not had rain for over three and a half years. The people are thin. The crops are failing. You would think something in her would would be celebratory, like praise God that our people have rain. But she's only embittered. Her heart's only hardened. And so she says to Elijah, so may the gods do more to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them speaking of the prophets of Baal who are dead by this time tomorrow now first kings chapter 18 verse 4 tells us this speaking of Obadiah here and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and he fed them with bread and water So the chapter before tells us that Jezebel has already killed many of the prophets of the Lord. So Elijah's not crazy and wanting to run. She's already killed many prophets. And assuming she's killed prophets that Elijah was acquainted with, maybe even some of Elijah's closest friends have been murdered by Jezebel. And I think that Elijah had hoped that Ahab would intervene. Ahab watches the fire on Mount Carmel. I think that Elijah expected the people of Israel to revolt against Jezebel, to overthrow her. After all, she's introduced Baal worship. She's murdered the prophets of Israel. You would think the king would put her in her place here. But Jezebel's a master manipulator. She's demonically inspired, demonically empowered. And when Ahab tells her the story, she rises up with a spirit of vengeance. And Ahab doesn't have the backbone to face off with her. Even in great moves of God, 
the enemy still hurls his threats. Even when things seem to be moving along and God's presence seems to be rich, we still experience false accusations, persecutions, and threats. I think the church will have breakthrough. The church will have great moments of encounters with God, with the power of God. I think the church is going to see a great harvest in the last days. But remember, in the same book there, Revelation, where the church is having a great harvest, the church is also... The people are also witnessing great persecution. The scriptural principle is, is that the, the light gets lighter as we um, approach the end of days. The, the church grows stronger. The light gets lighter. But the scriptural principle is also that the dark gets darker. That, the, that there's a, a real dichotomy that comes to fruition. Um, remember the idea of the, the wheat and tares. The, a servant comes to the master and says, um, someone has sown tares in our wheat and the and, and the master says don't don't cut it all down just let it all grow together and come to fruition and then we'll know what's what that, and and the idea is because when wheat comes to fruition wheat, wheat bows the fruit at the top makes it bow down the terror keeps standing straight and, and the point is that at the end the, the distinctions will be really clear who belongs to God and who belongs to the enemy I said all that to say that even in the moments of Elijah's greatest victory, you have to remember that, that the battle's not over. In our moments of breakthrough and when we think we've really seen God move, we never get to hang our hat. The enemy will still scratch and claw and punch. And in the midst of great success, spiritual warfare only increases. I think Elijah thought, I just ran 20 miles. I'm going to be able to go home and hang my hat on this victory and all is said and done. But the message just started. Two, Elijah is exhausted. I think Jezebel just rolled out of bed. I think she slept through the great encounter. Maybe she was getting her hair done. Elijah just experienced the greatest victory in his spiritual life and one of the greatest victories of Israel's history. But I think I can make this case scripturally that your greatest attacks, the greatest moments of spiritual warfare you'll ever experience will always be on the tail of your greatest victories. Studies show that pastors always quit on Monday morning. Almost always. It's often on Monday morning when I want to put my foot in my mouth. It's after you're pouring yourself out spiritually and in your greatest victories, it's as if God puts his hand upon you and you have boldness and confidence. Remember, Elijah's standing before the prophets, mocking them. He has his boldness and confidence and strength as the anointing of God presses him to minister. And when all is said and done, it's almost as if God's hand pulls and then you're just left with you. And you're tired. James Dobson wrote uh, that, um, that that pastors quitting on Monday morning. He wrote, he wrote an article about why pastors quit on Monday morning. The pastors quitting on Monday morning is, is not even totally just spiritual warfare. But that when you um, 
when you go through a great season of prayer, like you lay all night and pray, or you, as pastors, you preach on Sunday morning and you're laying everything you have out before people, or you go on a missions trip and you spend all day trying to preach and love people, or you stand in front of a crowd and give your testimony, there's a release of adrenaline in that moment as you stand before people. There's just a very natural physiological release of adrenaline in that moment. And what happens is on on Monday morning, I'm still using the pastor imagery, or the morning after you had this great victory, you really poured yourself out. The morning after you have, you experience um, depletion of adrenaline. So, So now not only are you tired from pouring yourself out spiritually, but your physical body is also trying to recover. And I think this is where Elijah finds himself. There are some commentators and theologians who will suggest that Elijah struggles with manic depression. I don't, whatever, I don't know if you can make that claim or not. I I would make the claim that the more passionate of a um, natural personality a person has, the greater highs the person has and the greater lows the person has. Do you know what I mean by that? I don't think Elijah is an even keel person. I think it's all or nothing. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, And I think Elijah just laid it all out. And now it's the morning after, and he's depleted of adrenaline. He's spiritually tired. He's very disappointed. He really thought that was it. He really thought this was great revival. He's disappointed, and I think he's um, now opposed by one of the most demonically inspired women, if not the most demonically inspired woman of all Scripture. And so after defeating 450 prophets of Baal, having them put to death and after looking Ahab in the face and leading Israel to repentance, praying rain down from heaven, uh, the scripture says that Elijah now gets up at the threat of Jezebel and runs for his life. Seems out of character for Elijah because it is out of character for Elijah. Verse 3, he rose and ran for his life to Beersheba. The scripture says that, that Elijah left his servant in Beersheba. Possibly because Elijah intended to quit. He tells his assistant, don't worry about following me any longer. He dismisses him. You're free to go. Possibly because Elijah thought that he would be found and murdered. Either way, he wouldn't need an assistant anymore because from his perspective, he would either no longer be a great prophet of Israel because he was going to quit or he would be dead. He goes a day deeper into the wilderness and sits down under a tree and says, I'm no better than my father's. And he prays, it's enough. Take my life. The man who just has great spiritual victory now has great spiritual lowness and depression. Elijah wasn't the first to pray for death. Job beat him to that. Elijah wouldn't be the last to pray for death. Jeremiah would also ask God to kill him. Men who've conquered great victories and even in our nation, you think about Abraham Lincoln and all the success that he accomplished. We know from his private life that he was also a man of great depression. 
told you before that Charles Spurgeon is remembered as the, as the prince of preachers, the best preacher expositor of scripture of his day. But his biographies tell us that there were many days he was scheduled to preach some more and he wouldn't get out of bed because he was so depressed. And I want you to hear me say that Job's depression didn't disqualify him. Elijah wants death, but God's not done with him. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, was not disqualified from his ministry. And God does not abandon Jeremiah in his despair. Rather, Jeremiah writes that God puts a deep fire within his belly. And again, James writes, Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. That means that you too possess a nature that can experience lowness, burnout, exhaustion, anxiety. So Elijah sits and prays for death. And what Elijah does next is brilliant, y'all. Absolutely brilliant. Elijah goes to sleep, okay? And sometimes what you need to do is take your happy butt to bed. Haley put a quote from Charles Spurgeon on our nightstand in our room, and it says this, Rest time is not waste time. It's economy to gather fresh strength. It's wisdom to take occasional furlough. In the long run, we shall do more by doing less. Men and women who burn out, who quit, who give way to sin are often men and women who never learn the value of rest. Graham Cook wrote, rest is a weapon given to us by God. The answer to fatigue, to burnout, is to learn to find healthy rhythms. You'll do more in the long run by doing less. Our, our cultural message is... Um, If you want success, you have to outwork the rest. Success is outworking everyone else. Get up earlier, work harder, study longer, stay up late, sharpening yourself while the weak are entertained. And there's actually a lot of truth to that. Hard work pays off. Laziness ain't going to get you very far. And as a believer, work ethic is a godly character that we need to continue to teach and instill in our young people. There's nothing wrong with that cultural idea that those who work hard go far. The idea is just incomplete. I was 25-ish with two little girls who I tell you all the time, who, man, are the worst sleepers I've ever experienced in history. And, I, and, and the job that, that we worked in was, was fast-paced. It was really fast-paced. If you know me longer than five minutes, you know that like I'm I'm not a fast-paced person. Um, on top of that, we were traveling a lot doing ministry, and on top of that, I was going to school full time because I needed to grind in order to succeed. So when everyone else rested from the fast pace that that we were at, I was getting up earlier and staying up later to study and to write. And I prided myself on the ability to sustain this pace so that my hard work would pay off. And I started to have weird physical issues, weird shots of pain. 
I got up to preach one night at a church on a Wednesday night. There was a podium like this. And I was preaching. And as I preached, I had more and more pain. And I started to lean over the podium. And I was pretending like I was trying to lean in and get people's eyes. But I really just couldn't stand anymore because I was in so much pain. And I got done preaching. And Haley took me to the ER. And I had ultrasounds and, and went to some specialists and had my blood drawn and do all these tests and try all these things. And eventually the doctors just say, you're, you're just putting your body under way too much stress that your body's just throwing fits. And, and hard work is biblical. Work ethic is a part of our testimony. If you're the laziest person at your job, how dare you call yourself a follower of Jesus, man? Like, keep up, work hard. But the scriptures also clearly teach that the believer is to embrace a lifestyle of Sabbath rest. And so you you don't teach your kids and your grandkids to outwork everyone else with diligence and commitment without also teaching your kids and your grandkids the value of systematic weekly rest. Without taking a day off a week to rest and be in the presence of God and recoup. Otherwise, your kids will burn out. They'll be on pills real quick trying to recover from all of the stress and anxiety that they've experienced. Only because they've never learned the principle of rest. So God creates the earth in six days and then he teaches us how to rest. And, and, and I, as much as anyone, want to live a life that knows great seasons of prayer. I want to have mornings of prayer and nights of prayer. I, as much as anyone, want to have seasons of fasting and pressing in. I want to see God's kingdom come as much as anyone. But, but burnout is not going to help me get there. Okay? And, and, and sometimes in, in, in church culture, we idolize burnout as if it's a testimony of your spirituality. And, and, and sometimes it may be Sometimes it may be that God puts you in a scenario that stretches you and you're tired and exhausted and he's asking more of you. But, but you can't live that way forever. And you've got to learn the, the biblical principle of systematic rest. So Elijah's recovery begins as he prays, lays down, and goes to sleep. And watch this. Watch what the angel of the Lord does. He wakes Elijah up after a little while. Tells him, arise and eat. Because he had made him a little snack. He said, what you need to do is go to sleep. And you need to get up and eat something. And, and notice what the angel does not do. He does not tell Elijah, now you are lazy. You're a coward. You need to get up and go back and fight. You need to do more. I'm disappointed in you. Get up and run your race. He doesn't do that. The angel feeds him. And Elijah goes right back to sleep. Then after a while, the angel wakes him up. Because the angel had made him dinner. And he says, arise and eat. When Elijah was fatigued, depressed, ready to quit, praying for death, God sends an angel to make him lunch. Then he takes a nap, and God sends an angel to make him dinner. I want to live laid down, passionate, sacrificial, selfless. I want to live obedient to the gospel with all of my heart. But I want to do it for the entirety of my life. I want to finish the full 
call. We've talked before about balanced, spirit-filled living. In the middle of all my praying and studying, we need to remember that sleep is a God-designed agent to allow you to recover. There is such a thing as being lazy and sleeping too much. I get that. But scientists say, doctors say, that the large majority of our culture lives sleep-deprived. And that may be a strategy of hell. Do you realize that when you're tired and exhausted, you will say things that you would never say if you were rested? Men and women who get tangled up in in deep sin, even ministers who get tangled up in sexual sin, are oftentimes ministers who are living tired, exhausted, and on on the brink of burnout. They think, it's actually arrogance, they think that they're strong enough to not need to rest. Push themselves too hard. Then they find themselves in their exhaustion, tangled up in sin that they couldn't dream of ever committing. Food is also from God. Again, you can overeat. You can eat like garbage, which ain't going to help you. But, but fasting is a beautiful thing. But you, can, you can't live a lifestyle where you don't take care of your physical body. Because strangely enough, your physical body is deeply connected to your emotional well-being. And strangely enough, your emotional well-being is deeply connected to your spiritual well-being. Your body, soul, and spirit. And they're all tangled up and intertwined. And sometimes you're experiencing such exhaustion that you can't even figure out on which channel are you experiencing exhaustion. Burnout will make you quit before your time. Burnout will cause you to cave in before you've accomplished all that God has called you to accomplish. Burnout will cause you to live in fear and anxiety rather than allowing the joy of the Lord to be your strength. Burnout will ruin your marriage. Burnout will cause you to parent your children, to to lead your grandchildren in in a stress-filled way that doesn't teach peace and patience. And again, burnout is not a testimony of your spirituality. Pouring yourself out for the gospel is a testimony of your spirituality. Running your race with a heart of sacrifice is giving God your all is. Fasting is, prayer is, but so is systematic rest. Being disciplined to rest is a testimony of of maturity. Being disciplined to systematically rest is the way that a mature man or woman lives in Jesus so that they can run their race well for the entirety of their life. And so the angel of the Lord who feeds Elijah now reminds Elijah of the brook Cherith where the ravens fed him and of the widow at Zarephath where God supplied for their needs supernaturally. And even in Elijah's depression, in his fear, in his anxiety, in his quitting, in his laying down, God settles him, feeds him, doesn't rebuke him, praise God. There are times in my life when I know I need a good rebuking, and the, it's as if the mouth of the Lord is still, brings encouragement. Good, good, good parents no, they, they learn to discern what, what moment in your child's life needs correction and what moment your child is defeated and just needs encouragement and support. Maybe they still need correction, but this isn't the moment for it. Do you know what I mean by that? And, and the goodness of God, the, good, the goodness of the heart of the Father in this moment, certainly Elijah needs correction, but in this moment, God just feeds him, just gives him strength. 
Then the angel says, the journey is too much for you. The angel saying, rest, eat, recover, because there's still more ahead. And Elijah is going to head to Horeb, Mount Horeb, which is the mountain that Moses received the law to meet with God, to revisit the place of covenant. And so he's going to get up and head to a place uh, to have a good old-fashioned prayer retreat. But the Lord gives him a moment to rest and recover before he moves him to his next assignment. Someone from the worship team wants to go ahead and come for me. I've wondered as I prepared this week and thought about this passage and prayed, I've wondered if some of us like Andrew Fuller or Elijah are feeling depletion, are feeling low. I wonder if there are some of us who would say I sit down in despair. If so, you're in the company of some greats. This morning, as we close, I just want to read to you the words from Matthew 11, chapter 28. Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus writes, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You who are weary and burdened, Jesus invites you to come to him and he promises to give rest. While he tells you that, that he's going to give you his yoke. Now a yoke is what you put on for work, right? When an ox works, it puts a yoke on. So Jesus is not saying, come to me. And you'll never have to work again. He's saying, yoke yourself to me and I'll teach you to work from a place of rest. I'll teach you to work in rhythm and in peace. You'll work longer and harder. You'll fulfill your call, but you'll do it in the peace and the joy and the righteousness of the Holy Ghost. You'll, you'll, you'll work. But there's quite a difference from working from a place of trying to earn approval wanting the approval of man, trying to prove your spirituality to God, there's very much a difference between working from a spirit of works and working from a spirit of grace. And, and a, good, a good father says, come to me and I'll put a yoke on you and you'll learn to work, but you'll work from a place of peace. I'll teach you to rest and to work from a place of grace and rhythm. So if you stand to your feet um, in altar ministry, you can go ahead and get in place. This morning, I want to close just a little bit differently. I'm going to take a minute just to pray, and I'm going to pray for peace. I'm going to pray for rest. I'm going to pray that God would teach us to lead our families from a place of health. Um, and as I close, um, we're going to be dismissed. And, and if you need to go, you need to get your kids, you need to get out of here, you're free to go. I just ask that you would... Um, 
make your way out of the sanctuary, at least kind of quietly, because what we're going to do is we're going to leave the altars open for a moment. And so anyone who's feeling even close to despair, you're feeling a little bit tired, a little bit exhausted. You, you feel like you need the rest of God because you've, you know that you've pushed too hard. Your prayer life, you feel weak. So anyone who needs rest, you need to come to Jesus and let him give you rest. We're going to leave the altars just kind of open. And, and Micah, I'm looking to see who's on the piano. Micah and Livingstone are going to stay as long as they need to stay. And, and I'm their boss, so I can say that. They, they actually work here, so they're on the clock. Um, Micah, Micah didn't have any voice today, so he's going to need some rest too. Um, but they're going to stay. And so if there are some of you, you're like, I need, I need 45 minutes just to lay in God's presence. This, this is going to be open for you for 45 minutes if you need to just recover. Um, does that make sense what we're going to do? You guys with me? Okay, so I'm going to pray. And again, if you need to get out of here, you're totally free. Don't feel any shame or guilt. Um, just kind of slither out of here without making too much noise. Um, and so Jesus, we are dedicated to being a house who serves you sacrificially and selflessly. We are dedicated to being a house that preaches and proclaims the gospel to our community, who does more to see people come to Jesus throughout our region and to the nations. God, but we want to do it yoked to Jesus. So, Lord, this morning, I come against the spirit of despair. I come against the spirit of anxiety. I come against a posture that says I have to do more to make something happen. And we settle ourselves in the yoke of Jesus. Where you lead. We settle ourselves yoked to Jesus where you set the pace. Where we work, but we work according to your rhythm. We keep in step with the Spirit, not running ahead. God, I ask for the shalom of God, the perfect peace of the Holy Spirit to settle over this house for a moment. This morning, we declare the rest of God. We remind ourselves that so much of the gospel is about rest. That we don't live our lives working harder to try to earn your approval, but we have your approval, approval perfectly in the blood of Jesus. We remind ourselves that as we're citizens of heaven, the last thing we need is the approval of man. We have the approval of a perfect, kind, loving father. And I just declare that to you this morning. The love of God is upon you. You're accepted. There's nothing to earn. Lord, we want to labor well at your pace. Lord, protect us from exhaustion. Protect us from despair. If there are any this morning who are experiencing a season of despair, we just declare life to you right now in the name of Jesus. Peace and rest. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.